This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about the flooding along the Colorado and Green River systems. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. Nature happens to be a very good recorder of the most extreme floods. Its records of the common floods are incomplete. But when a really big spectacular flood happens, particularly in a high energy situation like a mountain canyon, the evidence is preserved for a long period of time. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Vic Baker. Dr. Baker is a professor from the University of Arizona, where he studies present-day river deposits in order to understand the flooding history of the past. Dr. Baker came to Moab as part of the Center for Colorado River Studies River Science Moab series, and here we discuss with him the methods used to understand floods in the past in order to predict the risk of floods in the future. We begin our interview with Vic explaining when and why we started measuring flooding along the Green and Colorado rivers. Flooding has been observed basically since people arrived, and the recorded floods are when the European settlers came into the area. There was a major flood on the Colorado main stem in the 1800s. I think it was about 1884. But there was no quantitative recording of that. Then they started recording flood flows at Lee's Ferry in, in the 1920s. And a flood in 1924 became the main event. These floods were in the vein of the usual semi-annual flooding of the river, which got up to about 100,000 cubic feet per second below Lee's Ferry. In the normal regime of the Colorado River, the normal way in which it flooded, you'd get a uh, fairly large flow every year based on snowmelt. And this contributed to the morphology of the canyon floor Basically, it removed coarse debris, maintained a sort of channel to the river. But, of course, this water was not being used, and it bothered people that wanted to use that water for purposes of development. I think Herbert Hoover famously said that every drop of water that flows to the sea is wasted. And they talked about the ravages of the floods that occurred downstream in areas like Yuma, so the idea of putting dams in the river started and became really well-developed in the 1930s. This meant that they needed more records of the flooding, and so recording of Colorado River floods started around that time. At 100,000, which sounds like it was recorded in the, the 20s, what does that look like for the river system and for areas along the river how far would that water come up? It would be generally confined to the channel. In Moab, near the north end of the valley is where the river comes in, and that water would come up to like the base of the bridge that goes over the river there. It would be around the margins of 
the uranium tailings pile that was there, and it would flood some of the low-lying areas to the north. It wouldn't get into the area of Moab proper. The concern was being uh, voiced about the tailings pile, which was there from you know, 1950s, 1960s, when that was uranium mining. They evaluated what a much larger flood would do. It's called a probable maximum flood. This is calculated by engineers. It's really a fake flood because it's not something that ever happened. It is uh, determined by experts, and they try to think of the most extreme conditions that would be possible for nature, and then they do calculations to see where that would get to. And that flood might have gotten in the Moab area to about 300,000 CFS, about three times as big as a semi-typical Colorado River annual flood. And that would actually get into the boundaries of Moab, and it would also have impinged against the uranium tailings pile, which would be a concern. When that problem was being addressed, it was thought that the probable maximum flood was so rare, since it's the most extreme thing that people thought nature would do, then uh, it was sort of discounted as a hazard. A lot of your work has looked at paleo-flood hydrology, and I'm wondering if you can explain what, what is meant by paleo-floods. Sure, happy to. I invented the word. Well so, done. <laughs> <laughs> it was the title of a paper we published in the journal Science in 1982, because the methods for that, although there were aspects of paleo-flood studies that go back to the early days of geology, it didn't really become a detailed quantitative study until work that we began in Texas in the 1970s. The basic idea is that instead of us being so clever that we think we can say what floods will be, we let nature be the expert. In other words, we look to see the evidence that nature has presented of the biggest floods that have really happened. And that's a whole different way of looking at floods. Nature happens to be a very good recorder of the most extreme floods. Its records of the common floods are incomplete. But when a really big spectacular flood happens, particularly in a high energy situation like a mountain canyon, the evidence is preserved for a long period of time. So this was something we discovered and a lot of my career, extending back 50 years, has been focused on this development. So we started looking at these extreme events, and we found that when you have a river in a, in like in a canyon where the width of the canyon is not so great, the water doesn't spread out widely, instead the depth goes up very greatly with the increasing of the flow, the water is moving at much higher velocities and much more energy. So it carries very coarse sediment with it. And in areas that we call slackwater areas that develop at high flow, these are zones where the velocity drops rapidly, like at the mouth of a tributary valley, all that coarse sediment drops out. And that sediment is a record of that extreme flood. 
The flood also leaves erosional marks, it leaves gravel bars, it leaves a variety of kinds of evidence. So the part of paleo-flood hydrology that is more geological is kind of like a detective at a crime scene. You have evidence of this extreme happening, and you put together the clues that tell you what actually occurred. The difference is that these are unique events, and we have now very sophisticated methods because of technology that allows us to determine the age of the flood and also to put the magnitude of the flood, the discharge, the velocity, all of these factors into as elaborate a quantitative method as the conventional hydrological approach. So there's no way to call this a second-class kind of activity. In fact, it is better than the conventional approaches to studying floods because the modern record of flood measurement is so short that it doesn't include rare events. And even when the rare events do occur, the measurement devices get destroyed. So we don't have decent records of extreme floods. The only way we can get those records is from nature. So if extreme floods are important, we have to use paleo-flood hydrology to understand them. Can you, kind of more generally speaking, go into what these methods for measuring the flow and volume actually are that you're using in paleo-flood hydrology? Well, when the water rises in a stream, it goes to a level that we call the stage. And in hydrology, we're interested in the relationship of the stage to the quantity of water moving in a given period of time. That's called the discharge. So we have to develop a stage-discharge relationship. And in conventional measurement, one has flow in the stream and you use a current meter to measure the velocity of that flow. If you know the average velocity in a channel and you multiply that by the cross-sectional area through which it moves, that'll give you the discharge. For these paleo floods, we have the stage. And if we have a stable channel, that is a, a bedrock channel like many of the streams around here, then the channel is basically what's evident on the landscape. So we could just go out and measure that. That gives us the area. We'll have the stage. And what we need is some way of determining the velocity. That is done by using hydraulic relationships. We can see from multiple cross-sections how the water surface has changed. And, of course, it slopes in a downhill direction. And that is a measure of the rate of energy expenditure by the water. And that rate of energy expenditure can then be related to the parameters like the velocity. So we use hydraulic relationships. These are now computerized. They are used all the time in making flood maps, say flood hazard maps for cities. And those are the tools we use for determining the, the paleo flood magnitudes. So that allows us to be 
exactly as quantitative as other forms of measurement. The other important thing, though, besides the hydraulics, is the advances we've made in being able to determine the ages of the floods, exactly measure when they happened. When we started this work in the 70s, our method was radiocarbon dating. And in radiocarbon dating, you need something organic that was picked up by the flood and transported. And you basically, you date by radiocarbon to the time when the organic material was not interacting with the atmosphere. So if you have a plant that is growing or an animal that's breathing, there's a continual interaction of the carbon in the living organism with the atmosphere. And a certain amount of the carbon taken in is radioactive carbon-14. But when that organism dies, then that interaction doesn't take place, and the amount of carbon-14 decays with time. Well, that decay rate basically is a function of how many atomic dissipations occur as a function of time. If you measure those dissipations, it's called the beta particle measurement, you use that measurement to solve for the time. That's how it works, but it's a little problematic sometimes because you may not have a material that died about the same time it was moved by the flood. The new technique that's come in the last decade or two is called optical stimulated luminescence. And this is a technique that relies upon the technology that basically makes the light in your cell phone. It is a technology related to quartz, and luminescence is a solid-state physical property of material that when the high-energy defects that have been created in the electron shells that occur within atoms, when these have been excited some way, if you allow that to be released, the light will be emitted. But what happens in quartz grains is that when they are subject to light, which can happen if the wind blows the grain around, but it can happen in water flow, the previously excited state in the um, atoms in the quartz gets released. Light is emitted, although you don't see it, and it goes back to a stable state. But when the sediment is buried... There's small amounts of radioactive material in the sediment, and that causes the minerals to be excited again, and it builds up. What technology has made possible is take those excited quartz grains, you have to collect them in the dark. In the laboratory, you can very precisely measure the light that comes off. And because that's a function of how rapidly that built up, you can again solve for the time. So it actually dates to the time when the quartz grains were transported. But you need some fairly sophisticated equipment to do this, and the way it works is quantum mechanics. And, of course, as Richard Feynman famously said, no one understands quantum mechanics, so I'm not going to try to explain the process. It does work mathematically, though. That's incredibly cool, though, that we're at the point where we can really get understandings of the ages based on this technology. What is the error surrounding the dates? It varies with the uh, amount of radiation that's being generated in the material. It varies with your capability of measuring. 
and generally we're looking at you know certainly many decades of era, sometimes hundreds of years. The main point here, though, is that the scientists who do paleoflood hydrology are doing, they are interpreting things that are being presented to us by evidence. So it's not like they are just creating what nature is supposed to do. So this is very different than trying to simulate the future with a model, which depends on the assumptions that people make with that model. I'm not saying that that's wrong to do. I'm just saying that if you have the possibility to use nature to check that, you would be very foolish not to use the nature part as a check. So can you tell me about what these investigators and interpreters are finding out in nature? What was flooding like in the history that's still present on the landscape? The general thing we find is that floods tend to cluster in time, that the big floods seem to occur in certain preferential conditions. Floods, in many cases, have been very much larger than what our theoretical studies have shown, but there are cases where they have been smaller. The example of the flooding being hypothesized in regard to the uranium tailings, which was being evaluated relative to a probable maximum flood of about 300,000 cubic feet per second. So the paleo flood study we did upstream of the northern entrance of the Colorado into the basin where Moab is located produced a 2,000-year record of natural flooding. And in that 2,000-year record, we had 44 large different paleo floods. Nearly all of them exceeded the level that's supposedly represented by what's called the 100-year flood. And two of them exceeded the probable maximum flood. In other words, in 2,000 years, there were two exceedances of the probable maximum flood. So this probable maximum flood was definitely not a probable maximum flood. And that was a big concern because the hydraulics that were done showed that that was the flood that spilled all around the nuclear waste. Our studies showed that it's a much more common flood than was being hypothesized. As far as these two floods that have exceeded this predicted maximum flood event, how big were these floods? That maximum was about 300,000 cubic feet per second. And these were a little bit bigger than that. But as I said, this is only a 2,000-year record. That site does not go back further than that. So we don't really know about other exceedances. What conditions made it so that these very large flood events happened. Once you have this phenomenon, it becomes something that you pay attention to as a scientist. This is what an investigator does. What conditions led to that event? You don't solve that by just looking at that event. You solve that by looking at the whole context. You look for corroboration. You look for other things that were going on at the same time. You eliminate possibilities. You think about how things might come together. And so that's the answer to that. There's much more research to do to see how and why those things came about. We're beginning to do that. We're trying to develop new techniques to look at 
other ways of understanding the environment at the time these floods occurred, because we know when they occurred. We have other evidence of what the environment was like from evidence like tree rings, which tell us what growth conditions were like for trees. These are going to be related to climatic conditions that promoted the tree growth. And we can try to relate the time period in which these extreme floods occurred to these other factors. Then if in the future such combinations of factors were to occur, we could suspect that maybe we'd have a chance to get these kinds of conditions. That's how it would relate to the future. And nature provides guidance as to what has happened. So the role of science, in my view, is to provide a reliable source of wisdom that comes from understanding the natural world. And this wisdom can inform decisions because one has always got to take into account what could happen. And what we get from nature is what realistically can happen instead of what we surmise seeing as how the river is so altered now, not just the river, but the landscapes around the river, the land use on the river is so different than it was in the past. Is it reasonable to say that what happened is still possible? Because all of the variables are different. That varies with different parts of the planet. There are some places where the human modification is so intense that the characteristics of water running off the surface and the like have been highly modified. In those kinds of circumstances, you still need to know what was the causative aspects of the atmospheric process that produced the events that run off that. And our sample of that is limited. So the past is still highly relevant to that. And in those circumstances, even though we may not have an exact analog in the past to that thing, we still need the past to understand what would go through this modified element. Most of the country in the Colorado Basin has not been modified in terms of the landscape. There's a tremendous amount of areas of landscape that are national forests, they're, uh, where a lot of the snowmelt is being generated, even national parks. The extreme floods override a lot of the human disturbance of the surface, particularly over a large area. Now, of course, dams do interfere with the process, but dams are operated in certain ways for certain purposes. One of the issues with dams is that people are often told that the dam is going to provide flood protection. What people aren't told is the full story. Dams provide flood protection against little floods. Dams create a risk that there could be a bigger flood than nature would ever do. And that risk is that the dam will fail. This is the engineer's nightmare when they're trying to put dams in. And the nightmare is partly because dams are multi-use. The Colorado River dams... The overriding importance of those dams is holding water for supply. And secondary use is hydropower generation. And then there's a use for recreation. 
All of those work best if the dams are full. If the dams are going to be for flood control, they should be empty because then there's the capacity to hold that. So you have a conflict with dams. And the floods, they're very important because if you've got your dams full, let's say you are worried that the current drought is so bad that we have to be ready to supply water to California and everywhere else. So we'll fill our reservoirs as a insurance policy. Well, then what happens if a really big flood happens and the reservoirs are full and you aren't able to empty them fast enough, which is a issue, then the dam could fail and you will have a flood far worse than nature could ever have generated on that river, at least in, until the next ice age when maybe you could have a situation that could produce such a big flood. What first got you interested in paleo flood hydrology and the work that you're doing? I got into geology early on, and I lived on my grandfather's property in uh, Connecticut, which was glacial till, and he spent a lot of time taking stones out of his field so he could grow a garden. So I was impressed with that. It took me a long time to decide what kind of geology I wanted to do. After some wrong ideas about a dissertation, I started a study of what turns out to have been the greatest flood that ever occurred in North America, which was the glacial ice age catastrophic Missoula floods of the northwestern U.S., this was a ice dam 800 meters high, 2,000 feet high, that failed. So you had a 2,000-foot-high wall of water. It generates what we now call megafloods, also a word that I developed. These are floods of short duration, but they have basically the same flow as an ocean current. So most people studied floods by looking at little floods, of which we have many examples, and they extrapolate to the character of bigger floods. I'm probably the only person that started studying super big floods and looked the other direction. And so in doing that, I developed a different way of thinking about them. And then my final question for you is, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? The Parts of science that I find enjoyable is to be involved in developing understanding in surprising ways. And I've kind of gravitated to studying things that other people didn't study and not running away from the problems. This process of being completely open to what reality presents to you is totally fascinating because you don't ever really know where it's going to go. It takes you there you see things that you would never have thought you would have seen. So the surprises, they call it serendipity sometimes, are really what makes science worthwhile. Well, Vic, thank you so much for this interview about your very cool work. It was very fun to hear about everything that you've been a part of. Okay. This show was made possible through a partnership with the Center for Colorado River Studies and Science Moab. You can listen to this interview with Vic Baker again or any of our past shows at kzmu.org, sciencemoab.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. The music is by Jeremy Spaulding. 
Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins and KZMU.